Welcome, everybody. I um, hope you are all enjoying today. Um, thanks for the introduction, Leon and Sam. Thank you for reading. Um, and so as we uh, get started today, um, we have some Bibles being passed out. If you're interested in that, you can uh, raise your hand. And um, additionally, it's a little hard to see, especially with just the, the, house, or the, the spotlight on today. But if you have a question, uh, feel free to raise your hand if you think it will be edifying for the body. Um, I will do my best to answer that question. If uh, you think it's just something for you, you can come and talk to me afterwards. Um, I will be up here. Um, and we're going to be talking about hope today. We lit the, the candle of hope for Advent. And uh, a lot of my understanding of hope has come from this book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Uh, I would recommend it to everybody. Uh, some of the examples that I use today are going to be coming from that book, so I want to give credit where credit is due. If you guys want to check that out, you can find me afterwards as well. So the question I want to start off with today is, is being a Christian worth it? This is a question that I have to ask myself sometimes, but I really want us to kind of think about that before we jump, jump in more. Is being a Christian worth it? Is following Jesus worth the pain and the trouble and trials that come from doing so? Uh, the pain and difficulty of following Jesus can come in many forms. It can come through uh, not getting the things that make life easy. If we are going to not live a Christian life, uh, it's easier for us to be dishonest, to get into easy schemes to make money, um, and to live uh, a higher quality of life, if you will. Um, but even at the same time, we may be called by Christ um, to do some particular form of work um, that doesn't pay as much as we might be able to make elsewhere. And so that is a, that's a possibility of a sacrifice we make um, and have to ask, is it worth it? When we're wronged, is it worth it to forego vengeance and wait for God to do that on, on his timing? doesn't feel like it sometimes, and, and I, uh, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist today, and I, I identify a lot with him because he wants to come with a lot of fire, but he doesn't really get the opportunity to do that uh, in his life. And it, he has to ask the same question, is it worth waiting for this, this vengeance to come? The same thing, we can talk about um, other issues of morality. Is it worth waiting until uh, being within the covenant of marriage uh, to enjoy a sexual relationship? Uh, we can go out, get what we want. It's good, right? Well, if we have to think about it, is, is it worth foregoing the pleasures of the flesh uh, and doing things God's way? Now, I'm the preacher. Of course, I'm going to say yes, it's worth it, obviously. But, but these, are, these, are, these are real questions. I mean, I'm, I'm serious about this. And... Um, while I think the answer is yes, I think the, the real underlying question to that is why. Why is it worth it? Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today, and I think it really comes through in the life of John the Baptist, which we're going to go into detail about. So John the Baptist's life is a lot about hope, um, and as we look at hope, we have three, uh, three points I really want to drive home to you today. Uh, it's hope leads to action, hope leads to endurance, and hope changes. Am I on now? All right. I don't know. I'll, I'll grab this. We'll go with that. So let's, uh, let me give you a summary um, of the life of John. He was kind of a big deal. Um, if, it, if it wasn't clear, 
from that outside of the passage. Um, what we read today, Jesus says of John, there, there is no one greater than John born among women, which really means among humanity. So when Jesus the Savior says that, that's something to pay attention to. Uh, but his origins are, are more humble than that. He was born to a priest and, uh, and his wife, and they were old. Um, they didn't have any kids. Uh, his mother, Elizabeth, was, was barren. And then not only that, but they, they were old, so she was past childbearing years when an angel came to his dad, Zechariah, and said, you're going to have a son. He is going to be a prophet. He's going to announce that the Messiah is going to return. He's going to live an uh, interesting lifestyle. He's not going to be able to drink wine. Um, and he's going to kind of be um, on the fringes of society as he, as he preaches this message. And to, to top it all off, this kind of goes opposite of his, his humble beginnings, but he's Jesus' cousin. So being, being related to the Savior by blood is a pr- pretty good deal. Uh, when uh, Mary, Jesus' mom, was pregnant and Elizabeth was pregnant, um, they, Mary went to go visit Elizabeth, and in her womb, John, who was about six months older than Jesus, uh, when Mary showed up, started leaping in Elizabeth's womb. So... Elizabeth was excited by this, but I've never been pregnant, I, I, and for what it's worth, I think that a baby kind of going crazy in the womb probably isn't, wasn't very comfortable, but she understood that this, this, this is important. He, this child who is not even born yet understands what is going on here, that this is, this is the Messiah who will be born and will lead our people to freedom. So hopefully, moms, you don't have to deal with that. So John's a big deal. Um, an angel announced his birth. His mom told him that his cousin was going to be the savior. Um, and so if he thought himself a big deal, it really didn't come through. It didn't really show. So when John grows up, he moves to the desert. He wears itchy clothes made of camel's fur. Kind of think like wearing an itchy sweater all the time. And his diet consisted of locusts, grasshoppers, and wild honey. So he, he was kind of, kind of a, a weird guy. He would have been viewed as a prophet by the people of Israel. Uh, and in this, um, putting himself out there in weird ways, find, uh, putting himself in the wilderness, only, the, only people who wanted to hear his message, who were interested in what this uh, prophet of God had to say, would come and hear it. So as he was announcing the coming Messiah, announcing people and calling them to repentance and baptizing people, the only people that really came to him that heard this message. He wasn't going through the cities and towns yelling this. He was hanging out in the wilderness over by the river, and people would come to him. And just like other prophets, like uh, Elijah, like Isaiah, um, he was for the most part pretty lonely, living a secluded life. So, but this seclusion, like I said, led people to come um, and want to hear him, hear what he had to say. And uh, I think that John experiencing and understanding this hope led to his actions. So it allowed him to take actions in his day because what he saw was going to happen in the future. Because while Jesus was born, he hadn't, he hadn't announced his kingdom yet, and John probably expected that he was going to free Israel in a nationalistic perspective. So he's going to kick out the Romans. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But because he hoped that that was going to happen, and he had an eager expectation for it, he was willing to take actions to, to see it happen today. So he, he did that stuff. He lived in the desert. 
uh, he wore itchy clothing because it was an opportunity for him to be uh, to prepare the way for the Lord that was coming. So I want to. Th- what is the, What does this mean for us in this season of Advent? We don't tend to think of this passage about John as an as an Advent passage, uh, but all of this goes together. All of John's life points us to the understanding of the coming of Christ because he was the prophet who was announcing that the Messiah was coming. So Advent is a time of expectation, uh, eager expectation, a time of hope, but it's also a time of preparation for the king that is coming. So John didn't just, just stand and, say, and expect, okay, well, Jesus is coming, the Christ is coming, Messiah is coming, and wait around. He actually went out and did something about it. Uh, if the king is coming, it changes the way that you're going to act on a, on, a, on a daily basis. You're going to get ready for, for the royal audience that's on its way. And so, yeah, it causes us to take action. And I, I just want to take a second to kind of think about what that looks like for us as a body. It can, it can mean a lot of different things, and I, I want us to apply this as a, as a whole church and as individuals. But as we're think, I think that this makes sense for us as we consider our, our funding for the church. Um, it's exciting to hear that we you know, are guaranteed the building now. But, you know, it, it's actually, this, this really plays in well. We, we now know, we, we know we're going to get the building. But that, because of that, it should change the way that we are acting today. So fundraising, I've been doing fundraising now for six, seven years. I really don't like it a lot. I'll probably be doing it the rest of my life. But, that's, but, 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 I, but I understand why it's important, okay? Uh, so the other fundraisers in here get this. You've got to talk to people you don't sometimes necessarily want to talk to because they've got the dough, and, and you need it to be able to do the ministry that you're called to do. You talk to Christians, you talk to non-Christians, you got to put yourself out there. Put yourself in situations you might not like, uh, in tough situations, and because you know that you want to be preparing the way for, for what God is doing, for uh, what he's, he uh, is kind of already doing through you. And so what the fu- what's in the future causes us to take action today. So that can be with the building fund, it can be with changing the world. We're going to talk in our application point a lot about uh, other options for the church. So let's move on to our second point. The first point was that hope leads to action. Uh, our second point is that hope leads to endurance. So the theme of endurance is one that we see the most explicitly in this passage that we looked at today. Uh, John's faithfulness in action for announcing the coming Messiah got him into prison. He, he got in trouble for doing the, the ministry that he was called to do. So here's John's situation. He was in prison because of uh, preaching against, uh, well, telling Herod what he had done was wrong. So Herod was the king, the ethnic king of the Jews at the time, and he had married his brother's ex-wife, and actually at the same time, he had divorced his wife in order to marry this woman. So this was explicitly stated as a, as a no-no, you don't do this um, in Levitical law, um, and so it was considered adultery. So the king of the Jews at the time was, was an adulterer, and everybody, everybody knew what was expected, but he was doing it openly and blatantly, and he obviously didn't care, and he could get away with it. Who was going to do anything about this? So John, at this point in time, was maybe not over by the river baptizing people. Uh, he got the heir of Herod um, and was saying, don't do this. You need, to, you need to end this. This is bad news for you. This is bad news for the people of Israel. Herod put him in prison to silence him. Herod didn't want to hear that. So, um, as we consider that, what, you know, why is John asking these questions? Why does John come 
or send his disciples to Jesus and say, essentially, are you the one that we hoped for, or should we wait for another one? That's really reading between the line what the question is. Are you the hoped-for Messiah, or are you not? And I think John's doubts make a lot more sense when we understand the expectations he had from Jesus and the trials that he was under. So John was in prison at this time, but previously in his life, when he met Jesus, here's what he said in Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So in John's mind, he's the one preparing the way. He's kind of doing the peaceful thing. He's working with water, which is heal, you know, understood as like this big healing element. He's, he's dunking people and telling people, the, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is supposed to come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And fire is bad news, right? There's a purifying fire. You got to cut stuff out of your life with fire. Fire burns. It destroys. So he's expected, okay, I'm a prophet. Prophets of old are usually pretty, pretty, have pretty violent rhetoric, pretty, uh, pretty strong things to say. But John is really just saying, the Messiah is coming. Get, get your lives in order because of that. Jesus is going to come. And really bring it. So John can step back. John, John doesn't, doesn't have to bring the heat because he thinks Jesus is going to do it. But that's not what Jesus is doing, right? If we, if we read the passage, we see what Jesus is doing. Um, Jesus, it, it lists it here. Um, I'll, I'll list the things that uh, Jesus says is happening in his response to... The, let me just take a step back. He tells his, John's disciples to go back to Jesus and say, tell John what you see and what you hear. And here's what, they, here's what they see and what they hear. Uh, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and number six, the poor get good news. And so at the end of that, Jesus adds for good measure, blessed is anyone that isn't offended by me. And what I think the Greek really is saying here is that, and this is another translation you'll see outside of, of the ESV, some translations do it this way. Blessed is anyone who does not fall away because of me. So Jesus is aware that John, John is having the, these moments of doubt, that he's, he's asking these questions. He's ready to give up, and Jesus wants to speak to him to build him up and tell him, you know what, this is worth it. Because that's what John's asking. Is it worth it to be in prison? Is it worth dealing with this, this immoral king who's put me here? He could say kind things about Herod and get out, and that would, that would be good for John uh, in, in the worldly sense. And Herod, Herod would have loved it too. But John, John could have been out of prison. He wouldn't have to be rotting there. But in Jesus' response, we're getting a sense. Jesus is essentially giving John um, a message that he'll understand, and the people, some of the people who know the Old Testament scriptures will understand. Uh, he it's veiled because Jesus doesn't want to say to everybody, I'm the Messiah, even though he's telling John, I'm the Messiah. So I think we can see this if we look at Isaiah 35. Um, I think we can get that up, uh, up on the screen. So this is just a selection for time, but I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. So here's what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. 
It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So just, just in those couple of verses from Isaiah 30, oh, there's more, great. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So of those six things that Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and tell him, uh, we see five of those in the passage. We see the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, lepers being cleansed, uh, de- the deaf hearing, and the poor getting good news. The only thing that we're missing is the dead being raised, which Jesus had done, and we see allusions to in other of the Old Testament prophets. And so at the end, at the end of all... Um, the message that, so John will hear this, but at the same time, I think what really John will pull out of this is from verses three and four, and here's what it says. Um, so say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. So here, here's what, I, if I were John, here's what I would hear with this. Do not fear. Be strong. Your God has come through me. Vengeance and recompense will come, and it is coming. Salvation is near. Do not fall away. It's worth it. Be strong. How about that for hope? That, that, this, is what, this is one of the things, points that really uh, works for me. It affects me a lot. Uh, these words are for John, but they're also for us. Jesus knew that if John the greatest of prophets, the greatest of humans was going to have these doubts. You know, Joe Schmo, like me, was going to have them too. And so having doubts is a, is a normal part of faith. I think that we should have doubts. Um, you know, I, I think that if we're really taking our faith seriously, if we're really looking at, does this make sense? What is it, can I really believe when this is happening in my life? Those are real questions that we have to ask. And I think that as we come through on the other side of that, uh, it allows us to grow in our faith. And I don't think, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively young, but I think if I you know, make it to 80, 90, however old I get, I'm going to be having those questions the rest of my life. And my, my plan is to, to get through those, and I've seen God help me through those before. Doubts are important, and I think that it, it, we need to be honest when we have them. Because John could have just said nothing. Uh, the, if, if, if doubting wasn't something that was important, I don't think it would have been included in the scriptures. But Matthew decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to talk about that time when John doubted so that people understand that it's reasonable and that the future generations of Christians will understand what's going on here. So I, I, just as a, as a quick side note to that, um, so that was John's false expectations of what the Messiah would do, that the Messiah would come and liberate Israel immediately, that he would announce his presence immediately, that he would get a strong armed following immediately, and kick out the Romans, um, give Israel a national independence, and, and purge the nation of evil. That's not what Jesus was doing at the beginning. He started off just with the healing ministry. But at the same time he's having these doubts, he is also in prison. And another, another issue about doubt is that we're more likely to doubt when things are problematic in our lives. So we, we ask questions about God when somebody we love dies, when we're sick, uh, when things aren't going our way. But we don't, we don't say, oh, you know, I have doubts of God's goodness or his power when we're getting married or the day we graduate from high school or when we have our kids. Those, those are not the times when we're doubting God. And so when we have those doubts, which we all will have and should have, 
we, I think we need to spend the time asking ourselves, am I in a situation that is more likely to uh, do that in my life? Am I in a situation where, oh, things are not great for me right now. Maybe that's leading to my doubt. Uh, and, and if it is, that's fine. But knowing that, I think, can really help us to work through it and, and see what is my situation telling me or t how is my situation informing my thoughts and what does, what does the Bible, what do other believers say about being in these kind of situations? That's why we want to be in a, in a community to help each other through the good times and the bad times. And so, just to, just to give a personal example of, of one of the doubts that I, I still struggle with, uh, I trust God, I trust God for a lot of things, but one of the things that is one of the areas where I doubt God is God's power um, and maybe his care. I've been a Christian for about 10 years now, and for about 10 years I have been sharing faith with my dad. I want, he's not a Christian, I want him to be a Christian, and a decade is maybe not that long of a time, but... I doubt, at times, whether God has the power um, to change my dad's mind or whether he even cares to do so. Um, and like, I just went on a vacation with him, got to talk with him for who knows how, how many times we've, we've talked about faith. And he, if, if anything, he's, he's more against faith just in general than he was 10 years ago. Uh, and so as, as I deal with that, like, I can, I, can tell you, I can tell you a bunch of things from the Bible that says, yes, God has the power to do so. God cares. More, God has more power than me. He cares more than I do. But those answers don't always, don't always hit right away. Sometimes those are, uh, those are difficult things to accept. And so I stay on the journey, and I can have hope um, in the moment that uh, God is in control he is going to do what he's going to do. He's going to save more people than I can imagine in ways that I can't fathom. And he's going he's to do it in his way because he, he knows better. He's already saved so many, and I'll, I'll trust him to do it. That doesn't always help me in the moment, but, but I know that. Um, and it's okay to, to rest in those doubts and say, God, why, why haven't you done this yet? W will you ever do it? Um, and I'm, I'm not going to say much more on that because I think that it's important for us to just rest in this tension because there, there is tension and we need to be able to live in it. So zooming back out into John's life, uh, let's consider what becomes of John after his disciples report back to him. Pretty much the only other thing we know about John is that he dies. Uh, Herod beheads him. It doesn't suit his purposes to leave him in prison anymore. So Herod gets rid of him. And so like a lot of the other prophets before him, he ends up dying because of his ministry um, and because of his commitment to God. Uh, John was probably in prison for no more than a year after this event, but I think that his stay in prison after this would have been significantly different because he would have had hope for the future. First of all, as a Jew, he would have had hope for his bodily re resurrection at some point in time in the future, but he also had hope that the Messiah was going to do things on his own way. Jesus kind of deals with this in a very kingly way. Jesus says to John, look, I am the Messiah, and you're not. I'm the king. I'm going to, I'm going to do things my way, my agenda, my timeline. Get on board. And so John's like, okay, actually, that's a pretty kingly way to respond. So <laughs> get on board. So, so John's sitting in prison. He knows the king is back, even if he hasn't told anybody yet. And so John can sit in prison. He can, he can have joy in these hard times, 
He can smile. He can, he can rest assured knowing that the expectation of Israel has arrived and that even if he doesn't make it to see Jesus return, one day he will and that his people are on the way to salvation. So his future or his present was affected by his knowledge of, of what was going to happen in the future. And it gave him endurance in that moment and for that year to continue on with his life. And so I kind of imagine uh, John, when the executioner comes, being able to you know, die with, with a smile on his face because he, he knows what's in the future and he knows that his life is not the end of all life and it's not the end for everyone. I kind of think... We're going to get two, the same Star Wars scene twice in this sermon, so we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll start the first one now. So, spoiler alert, um, in the original Star Wars movie that came out in the 70s, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is like the main character's uh, mentor, and he fights the bad guy towards the end of the film. And so he's in this lightsaber battle, and right before he's about to, to die, get struck down, he looks at the main character, Luke Skywalker, and he gives him a little bit of a smile. And then five seconds, later, five seconds later on the screen, he gets cut down, and that's the end of him. But he went to his death knowing that it wasn't the, it wasn't the end. The title of that Star Wars movie is A New Hope, which when I thought about, the, thought about this scene, I didn't even realize that. So it, George Lucas knew what he was doing. Like, there is a new hope. Obi-Wan Kenobi can die knowing that there's a new hope for, for the universe. John the Baptist can die knowing that the new hope for the whole universe, for all of creation, has come. So, this point we just got, got through, the endurance point, hope leads us to have endurance. And our first point was hope leads to action. And so the final point we're going to look at is that hope changes the order of things in the world. So, as Christians, just like John the Baptist, our hope is in Christ. Um, our faith is in what, he has, in what he's already accomplished, and our hope, our eager expectation, our our. our, our what we, want, what we know is going to happen for the future, what we think is going to happen, um, is that he's going to finish what he started. Uh, so, and this is what Advent is about. It's that Christ is coming. He's coming again. Um, Advent is not just about Christ's first coming, his original coming in a manger, although it is about that. Advent is also about Christ's ultimate coming, his final return in the end. So we, we live in this tension of, of we're past the original coming, but we're not, we're not through to the final coming. And, and one of the things I, I want you guys to be able to take home today is that uh, we celebrate Advent before Christmas because that's kind of how the church calendar worked out. But it would be equally appropriate for us to celebrate Advent after Pentecost, after Ascension Sunday, because we know he's coming back as well. And so the Advent, we know he is coming, and so we need to prepare for his, his return. And so Advent has kind of, for us, become a, a period of extended Christmas, um, and, and there is a big component of Christ's coming as, as a child in Bethlehem. But there is an equally important aspect of it to think of Jesus' uh, return in the future. And that, that return could be, you know, later this afternoon. It could be sometime way down the road. Um, but understanding that he is coming back should lead us to want to, to prepare and, and change the way that we're living and change the way that other people are living too. And so I think that this understanding of uh, 
things are changing, that the, the resurrection of Jesus and his return um, are changing the world. We get a little bit of a taste of this uh, towards, towards the end of, Matt, well, towards the middle of Matthew, just a couple chapters from uh, what, we just, what we just looked at. In Matthew 14.1, um, this is three chapters from what we just read, um, it says, At that time, Herod the ruler heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. So John's dead. Herod killed him. If anybody should know that John's dead, it's Herod. And Herod's like, John's back. Uh, something's happening. Because for Herod at this time, he didn't know who Jesus was. He knew who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was the spiritual guy at the time. So if there was weird spiritual stuff going on, Herod was going to attribute it to John the Baptist. And the fact that Herod could say, oh, John the Baptist is back, you know, shows the point that Jews had this kind of common understanding that there would be a bodily resurrection of people. But Herod, as the ruler, resurrection is no good for him as, as a worldly authority. Because what can a worldly authority, what can worldly power do against a resurrected body? Uh, a body that, it, that is resurrected, the glorified body, it can't be imprisoned, it can't be hurt, it can't be corrupted. And so all the power that the world uses to get to, to keep people in line, to uh, have the world work the way that it wants, are, are, are no longer powerful. It's absolutely, absolutely useless. And that, that's the power of what, what the resurrection is, and that's the power of our future resurrection in Christ, is that he's coming back, and as Christians, we are going to get these glorified bodies that we can't, we can't even imagine. Uh, one of, one of the things that I think is, is interesting to consider is that when, when Jesus uh, comes back in his glorified body and he's resurrected, people don't recognize him. He's a stranger to them because his body, is, it, it, we, the, the people even who knew him don't really recognize because he's so different. He's not, he's not just a, um, a fallen being, or well, he's never fallen, but he's not just like, like us who, who are fallen and sinful. He, he his, in his glory... And, and we will come in glory too when he returns, is so similar but also so different that it changes the way that, that people see him. And, and we need to consider what, what are we going to look like when we are made fu- uh, fully pure um, and fully righteous and under him very powerful. And so th- this, this is uh, give us hope today, and it changes the order of the world because as Christians, we need not fear the power of the world, the power of governments, the people who, who uh, question us, who threaten us, who uh, come against us. I think back to the early church where people were dying by the droves because they, they believed in Christ and they were not willing to, uh, to not say that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was. So they, they died because uh, they, they were willing to take that to the grave. And the Romans at the time thought that they were winning because they were striking these people down. But, that, but in the end, that, that is not, uh, that's not how it worked out. The church, church grew through all this martyrdom. And uh, I like to think of it, let's go back to that Obi-Wan Kenobi scene from Star Wars. What he says to Darth Vader right before he strikes him down is, if you strike me down, I will return, or I, I will become more powerful than you can imagine. And that's, and that's what happens to us. If, if, if in our lives the, the, the world is coming against us, as we try to pursue Christ and try to change the world, as we speak truth to power about many issues, when they say, don't do this, or, or we're going we're gonna to hurt you, we have to say, bring it on. 
we have to say, your intimidation of us, your, your power does not affect me. My king is greater than you are. And so I'm, I'm going to, I have a passage I really want to, to explain well, so I'm just going to just read it off of here, because um, I don't want to say too much, and I don't want to say too little. So let's put this in the context of Christ's ultimate mission. His mission is to put things right. God's plan of action is to create a new heaven and a new earth, to bring heaven to earth, to heal the broken in this world, to bring justice to those who have done wrong and been wronged, and to give immortal, incorruptible bodies to the elect. This is the hope of the world that Jesus brings. And I don't want to minimize the idea that we as individuals need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, This is really important um, for us. We're evangelicals, kind of our mantra. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, But there is no power in that idea of me and Jesus. Me and Jesus is an idea that gives governments power. Me and Jesus doesn't scare rulers. Me and Jesus means that Jesus and I are doing our own thing while the world spins madly on an an injustice and its sin. Personal piety only makes sense in the context of joining in the hope of what God is already doing and making heaven come to earth a little bit now. A taste of what, giving it a taste, the world a taste of what God is going to do in the future. If our focus is on going to heaven when we die, then what's the point of dealing with the problems we see in the world today? That's, that, what, what scripture teaches is not when we die, we go to heaven and we, we hang out on clouds uh, playing harps all day. You don't see that in the Bible at all. Um, that, that's not what it's about. Christ is coming. We, this is Advent. Christ is coming here. Heaven is coming to earth. They are going to be, become a, a merged realm. And so we are preparing the way for the king today. The reality of Christian hope is that when, the, when heaven and earth is one, and as the king is coming here, we will spend eternity in, in this merged realm. And so Christ is coming back, and I want to give a picture of what it's going to look like as Christ returns. So we're going to look at Revelation 19. So here's what it says. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linens, white and pure, were following him on a white horse, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus, this time, on his second return, his ultimate return, he's coming for war and he's coming for victory. He's not, being, he's not coming the second time being born in a manger, coming as, as a weak, meek person. He's, he's coming with an army. He's riding a horse. He's all tatted up. He's got a sword. He, that's what it says. That's what it says. And he is coming to vindicate the world and, and save people and finally and ultimately make things right. And here, here's my hope. This is what helps get me through many days. I know that this is going to happen. It's going to happen someday. And because I know that this is going to happen, 
I can work to change the structures of the world um, to make a little piece of heaven come to earth today. So I want to summarize here our three points. Hope leads to action. Hope leads to endurance. And hope uh, changes the the things of this world. So application-wise, what does this mean for us? It means that our mission as the church is so much bigger than anything that we can imagine. It means announcing God's kingdom, but it also means uh, preaching, message, the, preaching the message to everybody, not just about uh, Christ's coming, but showing them what Christ's kingdom will look like. So as for actions that this can lead us to, uh, I think it's helpful for us to think about us as being heavenly colonizers. So this is, this is a really important idea that uh, I got from the N.T. Wright book, and we know the verse that says, um, our citizenship is in heaven. So what that verse is saying, it's not saying, oh, when we, when we die, we go back home. What this, Paul was speaking this to, to a Roman audience that understood how Roman colonies worked. And so how that worked is that uh, Romans would go and make new cities, they would colonize them, and eventually the king would come and kind of, uh, in this coronation ceremony, he would give legitimacy to this colony. And so as Christians, when we hear our citizenship is in heaven, it means we're preparing the colony of earth, essentially, for Christ who will come. And so colonists don't just sit around and wait for the king to come. They're, they're, they're making buildings. They're making agriculture. Uh, they are creating society that will be pleasing uh, to the king that's coming and in line with what his purposes are. And so this calls us to change the world because the world right now is not the way that God wants it to be. And so that means that we need to feed the hungry, but it also means we need to work in structures uh, that, means, that make it so that nobody is hungry again. We need to heal the sick, but it also means we need to work on the fundamental reasons why people get sick. We need to uh, send good news to the oppressed, but we also need to tell the oppressors to stop it, and we need to, we need to stop them. Uh, we need to cross cultures. Um, we need to, sh- to show the world that every person, no matter what color their skin is, where they're from, has dignity, value, and worth. And we need to fight against systems of government and rule that put people against each other. And we need to do all of this while we are praying for God to help us in any, any of the things that we're doing. Because Jesus is coming soon, uh, and, and we need to be ready and preparing as much as we can in the meantime. And so, how does this lead us to endurance? This future detailed, the, re- the revelation passage I shared, the understanding that Christ is coming, it's going to happen with or without us. Christ doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us to accomplish his purposes. Um, and if we see what Christ will do, it is going to allow us to do the hard things, even if it seems like we're getting no, no earthly benefit out of it. Other people will benefit, and ultimately it brings glory to our God. And that's what endurance does um, as, as we suffer for him, as we do, do the hard things uh, in our lives for his sake. And so I'm going to close with the question that I asked at the beginning. Is a life for God worth it? Is a life as a Christian worth it? And, and why? why? Why is it worth it? What about hope gives us this, this ability to, to live a life for Christ? Please pray with me. Father, we, we praise you. Uh, 
and we ask that we would understand your hope for us more. We ask that your hope for the world that is so great and so massive and so mighty, that we would come to understand that just 1% more daily and that it would affect the way that we live, that we would be strong and bold people for you that are uh, changing the world, that, is, that are bringing justice, um, that, are, that are helping people who need it. And at the same time, when we are feeling hard times because of, of things that are coming against us, because this world hates you, that we would be able to stand strong, knowing that you have told us, do not fear, be strong, I am with you, I am coming. So give us, give us what we need and change this world mm-hmm. through your power and through using us. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.